in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. So we're, we're going to be doing a different Easter message today than normal. If you want to hear a little bit more of your standard message, I have, normally we, we talk about the tomb being empty. The women go and see that the tomb is empty and they're all just distraught. There's, you know, the gardener who is Jesus. All, all of that story I preached on the last year and the year before. And so you're welcome to go back and listen to those messages. Uh, but there is a, uh, there's a story we don't hear so much about. Uh, by the way, one of my favorite things, you might remember me talking about this last year, one of my favorite little personal eyewitness stories in the traditional Easter narrative is that when the women go and tell that the, the tomb is empty, you know, none of the men really believe it at first. They're like, what? You know, they're, they're hopeful, but kind of cautious. And then there's this moment where John is telling us that he and Peter go run to the tomb. And then he records throughout all of history and for all of time, John makes sure to tell the future that he won the foot race. He's like, you know, he, and then Peter and the, the disciple whom Jesus loved ran to the tomb and the disciple whom Jesus loved beat Peter. And it's just, I just think that's hilarious. So anyway, though, today we're going to talk about a story we don't hear as much about and happened later in the day on Easter Sunday. So the main 11 disciples, because you have 12 and then now Judas is gone. He's trying to pay back the, the Pharisees. And anyway, that's, that's a story for a different time. But the main 11 are still in the upper room camping out. And though we always think about the 11 or the 12, there were other disciples. There was the 70 and the 120 as well, but they don't get as much time. They don't get as much airtime. We don't hear their names as much. But two of these mystery disciples, these followers of Jesus, start heading back home to Emmaus. It says, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. So over and over in this story, Luke keeps telling us that they were talking and you get this sort of frantic sense that they're just talking, kind of verbally spewing after something really interesting or devastating happens and people just kind of yap a mile a minute. That's what they're doing, trying to figure out and process what has happened. You know, a week ago, they went to Jerusalem for the Passover. They watched their leader, their rabbi, come into Jerusalem as a king and people putting palm branches down and they're thinking, wow, we're a follower of this guy. They're, wel they're welcoming him as a king. This is about to get really good. And now a week later, he is murdered. You have stood by and watched this happen. And now you've been hiding out in an upper room because who knows if they would do the same to you or not. And that's their reality. But finally, these two, and we don't know who they are yet, these two decide to head back. They're not the 11, they're not as known, they're not Galilean, so they think they can maybe leave this upper room and make it out of Jerusalem, that it's safe for them to leave. So it says, uh, this is from Luke 24, verse 15, it says, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. So this is just a few hours after the empty tomb scene with the women. So as they discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So this is important. They were kept. This is not that they didn't recognize him. God is keeping them from recognizing Jesus. So here they are. They're walking back. These two mystery people walking back after Passover. And this stranger comes up. And this stranger, they think, must be doing the same. So all of Israel crowds into Jerusalem for the Passover. And then just like Minnesota on a summer cabin weekend, you know, Friday, Normally rush hour wouldn't pick up till like 3.30 or 4, but at like 2.45, you, I mean, watch out, right? Because everyone's getting up north. And so there's certain freeways that get clogged. And in the same way, there's a ton of people all leaving Jerusalem at the same time. And they assume that this stranger must be doing the same thing. 
So here they are walking seven miles toward Emmaus, walking back home. And that is a long walk, I think seven miles. It's a long walk, especially when your rabbi, your Lord has just died. Now it says they were kept from recognizing him, which is keep, keep hold of that, that this is not them not recognizing Jesus, but Jesus keeping them from seeing him. They call it a divine passive. So uh, this actually happens a few times. If you read in John as well, Jesus comes back, but a lot of his disciples don't recognize him until a certain miracle or until the breaking of bread. So Jesus, it's like he has a new, he's, he has a new resurrected body, but his face is maybe just different enough that people aren't sure who he is until he does something that then makes him recognizable to them. Or he, maybe it's the same face, but he just keeps them from recognizing who he is. So here Jesus himself is speaking with them, and they're his followers. Lots of agnostics and atheists are like, well, obviously it wasn't Jesus. They didn't recognize him, so it couldn't have been him. But the Bible is not trying to pull a fast one here at all. It's saying this exactly. Jesus was there. They had no idea that it was Jesus because he was the one disabling them from recognizing them. So Jesus says, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still. Here they'd been walking. They're walking for seven miles, but then they stop in their tracks just to be able to pull the energy together to answer this question. It says their faces were downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Jesus, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, Jesus asked. So of course, Jesus knows what's happened, but he's just sort of egging them along. So here's where this gets a bit more interesting. Who is Cleopas, right? Does anyone, how often does that name occur in the New Testament? Just so you get some sense, just so the name doesn't seem so strange, Cleopatra, the male form of that name, you know, you've got like Harry and Harriet. So Cleopatra is the male form of that name is Cleopas. Just so that's where this name comes from. But who was Cleopas and who was the person walking beside him? If, if you do a search just in any, even in English, you just do a search for Cleopas, he only appears one more time in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, John tells us that he is the husband of Mary. It's like, well, that's helpful. There's like three or four Marys, right? So which Mary are we talking about? Um, again, we, we often talk about the 12 male disciples of Jesus who were sent out two by two. They're the ones who kind of represented the tribes of Israel. But Jesus also had female followers, and some of them were married, but the female followers were clearly like the main ticket in that marriage, if that makes sense. So you could call them uh, the female disciples. You know, you had a number of these women who, even though they were married, it was sort of the woman who like counted more, if that makes sense. It, like they're the ones who were serving Jesus's ministry more. And um, so not only are the women the first to carry the news, the first to preach or proclaim the resurrection, and uh, one of them, one of the many Marys is married to this man named Cleopas. So one of the first, one of the women who was at the cross and then one of the women at the tomb is married to Cleopas. But it seems she was kind of the main follower. Cleopas, he's great and he went along with her, but she was kind of the main contributor, it seems, although we don't know much more about her and it gets confusing with which Mary does what. So this is probably Cleopas and his wife going back to Emmaus where they're from. And they answer Jesus, he says, what are you, you know, what things have happened? And they say about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So here, this is really interesting. This is early pre-Christian Christ-following testimony, right? They didn't know that he was risen. They didn't quite get it yet. So this is what they're thinking of Jesus, even after the resurrection, but before they knew it. So they say he was a prophet. 
Now, you got to realize this. This is what they're thinking. And then within just a few hours, everything changes as, as to what they believe about Jesus. They say he was a prophet, not he was the Messiah. They say he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, but we hoped, and those are the key words. He is a prophet, he was powerful, but we hoped he would redeem Israel. We hoped he would be the one, the Messiah, but he's dead, so I guess not. Can you just, can you imagine the dagger? Like you're Jesus and you're hearing this, that they, they, the sadness that they still don't get it. He said a dozen times that he was going to die and he was going to rise again on the third day to redeem Israel. But they don't get it. And that's fair. We wouldn't probably either at this point. So they're like, well, he was a great prophet, but we thought he would be more, but now he's dead. And then they go on to explain more. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So they don't believe in the resurrection yet, although they've heard a tale of it. Here you can tell they're doubting, not even doubting, they just don't believe it. They think it's a fantasy. Some of their women uh, have told this big tale and it's too good to be true. When you're so devastated, maybe someone's just looking for hope. It's obviously too good to be true and we cannot believe it, but it certainly would be upsetting to lose your Lord and then all of a sudden have people say he was alive and for you to know that's not true. It's just kind of upsetting to have someone even say that. So contrary to what many modern people think, the ancients were not any more likely than a modern person to believe that resurrection was possible. It was preposterous. And until they saw him and felt his wounds and saw the miracles, they did not believe. So here these two are walking and they say, but we hoped that he would be more. And they're obviously disturbed because they know the body's gone, but they don't believe in the resurrection yet. And they're like, well, what, what did they do with his body? In, in Jewish religion, the sacredness of the dead body was paramount. It was so important. And now the body is gone. It's like, well, are people desecrating the body? What are, are they leaving it out for the beasts? Like, what is going on? And it's, they're just so disturbed and bothered. So at this point, Jesus cuts them off. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So they still do not know that this is Jesus, but he walks them through scripture showing, starting with Moses and then the prophets, they've got this, you know, three hour walk. So he's showing them according to all the prophets that it all points forward to this Messiah, to Jesus. And again, he must be, he's talking about Jesus in the third person, even though that's him. And so he's, he's showing how, the, how God's entire plan for salvation, starting in the beginning of Genesis, was, was chosen and developed throughout time, and it all landed on Jesus. And something really important here is that we do not read the Old Testament as pointing to Christ out of our own creativity or ingenuity. This is actually something, this is an exegesis. This is a, a theology we trace right back to Christ himself. When we read the Old Testament as pointing forward to Jesus, we, we don't, we're not doing that out of inventiveness. We're getting that directly from him, and that's being passed down within the church to read the Old Testament like that. And whenever so-called Christians ignore the Old Testament and say, ah, you know, we don't really like the Old Testament or the, the God of the Old Testament seems different. Uh, that's just Jewish stuff. We just want to focus on the New Testament. You get heresy. You get the Marcionites and the early church condemns that. Or you get the Nazis and then people like Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer write the Barman dec Declaration and they condemn that attitude of saying, ah, this is just Jewish scripture. We're just going to focus on the New Testament. Evil people are always constantly trying to cut off the Old Testament 
from the Christian life. They're always trying to separate the Jews from the Christian life, but don't listen to them because the Old Testament is our scripture. It was Christ's scripture, and it is those pages that he is exegeting through to point forward to him. So that's why we read the Old Testament like Christ did. All right, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. So, okay, you know, fair enough. They invite this stranger to stay with him. They do this because it's a culture of hospitality and it's getting really dark out, which is really dangerous. You remember the story of the, uh, the Good Samaritan, right? The person who's beat along the pathway. So it's, there's no police then, there's no street lightings. So being on any road at night, unless you're a squadron of Roman soldiers is a very dangerous place to be because there are a bunch of bandits who would make their living by living up in the rocks and the hills and they'd come down and rob whoever they saw. So they prevail upon him, say, you know, stay with us, it's getting dark, it's dangerous, uh, stay. And then what happens? It says, so he went into their house in Emmaus and when he, uh, this is just fascinating, we don't know where Emmaus is anymore. Uh, we, we, we don't really have any record of it, but history progressively gets lost in time if it's not recorded. But they still knew where Emmaus was when Western crusaders went and fought their wars in the Middle East. So we have accounts, not from the actual biblical time, but we have accounts of the crusaders being like, hey, this is where Emmaus was. But because some of those names have changed since then, we don't know exactly where they were. So it's this mess. But when the crusaders were doing what they were doing in the 11 to 1300s, people knew where Emmaus was, and we no longer know where it is. So anyway, a fascinating little bit of, of history there. So uh, he's, at the he's at the table, he goes to their home, and it says, when he was at the table with them, he, this stranger, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. So this one verse is like, wait, what? <laughs> what, what just happened? So the stranger took bread, it sounds familiar, right? Gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them in their own house, so some might think, and from a Western perspective, we might be like, well, big deal. You know, someone's got to break the bread. Someone's got to bless it. Like, what, what's, the, what's the big deal that this stranger broke bread? That doesn't mean he's Jesus. The reason this is so shocking, and anyone in the ancient world, I mean, for all of time, would just be blown away by this, is that he is the guest. So he's the guest in their home, and it is absolutely preposterous for a guest to pretend or sort of play the role of the host. But by blessing, by breaking the bread, blessing and giving it, he is making himself the host, which would be incredibly, incredibly rude in that society, unheard of. There's not maybe a Middle Eastern or Arab man in history who has done this, but it's something that Jesus would do everywhere he, everywhere he went. Jesus was just funny. He would do this. People would invite him into his home and he would take over when he got in the home and he would bless and he would break, you know, whether he's in the Pharisee's house, Nicodemus's house, wherever he goes, he becomes the host because all the meals are his, right? He is the Lord. He is the rabbi of rabbis. And this is something he would do. And as a Westerner, we read the New Testament. We don't get how awkward and how out of place that is. But when this stranger on the road who pretends to not know who Jesus is, all of a sudden goes into their home and does this same thing that no Arab, that no Jew had ever done. He just takes over as host in their own home. Their eyes are opened, especially too, to the kind of the communion language, communion ceremony, them blessing, breaking the bread and giving it. All the meals are his. And so they realize, wow, this is Jesus. Or maybe he, whether his face is the same or not, he reveals himself in this moment, both through the breaking of bread, but also he opens their eyes to his reality. 
And then you think, oh, this is great. Now they're going to get to digest everything and talk about Jesus with what just happened on the cross. They're going to they're be able to um, process everything that's happened. But instead, what happens is he vanishes. And you're just like, it's just total whiplash. He disappears. And when people think of this, it's kind of weird. Like when we think of something disappearing, someone disappearing or just kind of vanishing, we imagine them getting airy. We imagine kind of like a ghostly, foggy presence for them to just sort of uh, escape. But he is in a body. Jesus is in a resurrected, new, yet the same body. But he's not kept by earthly physics anymore. So later that night, we'll get into this in a bit, um, but later that night he appears to his disciples and the, the gospel writer makes it makes a point of saying that they were in a closed room and the door was locked and all of a sudden Jesus is just there. And a lot of people imagine this and they just think like, well, maybe he's kind of ghostly or kind of airy, kind of immaterial. And C.S. Lewis has made this great point and I think this is, totally fits. He's not less solid than our reality in his new body. He's actually more. He's more rock solid, more material. So think of how ice goes through water, right? It's the same kind of composition, but ice goes through water because ice is the more solid thing, right? The water bends around it. So instead of thinking of him as this airy, ghostly thing that can kind of go through walls, think of him as in his resurrected body, he is more fixed. He is more rooted and he is more solid. And it is this airy, passing away realm, this earth that will someday be folded up like a squirrel that he can pass through because he's more solid. He's not ghostly and weak and airy. He is, he is like rock and we're the air that bends around him as he does what he wants. And someday when we are raised from the dead, we will also be in our same yet new bodies, but we will also be more fixed, more sturdy, more solid and passing through what's around us that's not as solid. So we will get a body like this too. So here, their eyes were opened, but not by them. Their eyes were opened to them. They were opened unto them by God. It is God, this can make us a little uncomfortable, but it is God who opens our eyes to Christ, or it is Christ who chooses to conceal himself. He is the one who calls, he is the one who opens our eyes, and he chooses, if we hear his voice, he chooses if we see him. They asked each other, were not our hearts, so here Jesus disappears, and they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? So they felt this burning of the Holy Spirit as the scriptures were explained to them. No doubt, like you guys do every Sunday while I preach. No, just kidding. Uh, but they, they felt this burning as the Holy Spirit was, ex or as the, the scriptures were explained via the Holy Spirit. And there are probably a few times in your life, whether from a certain preacher or if you're reading scripture or if you're listening to like a podcast, there have been those few times where you just feel this burning, like the Holy Spirit is making scripture clear to you. It's just like the whole thing is laid out and you get something and it happens to them in that moment. So they've just done a seven mile walk to Emmaus. And then they're like, this is crazy. This Jesus has you know, appeared and then he's gone. And they decide that they're gonna run back to Jerusalem. So this is like over a half marathon of walking, you know, in one, one afternoon and it's already dark, but they don't care about the danger. They're going back to Jerusalem because they have to tell the disciples what happened. So they walk another seven miles or they kind of walk jog another seven miles back. It says, there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. So they go back and tell them everything that happened. And they're like, wait, yeah, it's true. He appeared to Simon, who's, who's Peter. And then the two told everything that happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. 
So they take this message back and the other 11 disciples are already buzzing that, that, that Jesus has appeared to the women. Now he's appeared to Peter. What's interesting is all the disciples talk about how he appeared to Peter. We actually don't have a record of him appearing to Peter. We don't know what that was like. Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it. All the gospels talk about how he appeared to Peter, but we don't know that specific story. We know that Peter ran to the empty tomb and he was gone, but we don't have a record of Peter's uh, encounter with the risen Jesus. We just know that it happened. So Peter's there telling the story. Some like Thomas and others are doubting and I'm glad that they're there. I'm glad that for the record of history, they're like, we need some proof. You know, we need more because then it makes it more credible for people down the line who had different historical standards. Thomas is doubting like, like we would in this, in this position and none were quick to believe. But then they all see it in this moment. They all see it for themselves. They're still in the same place where they had the Last Supper. They're still in the same place where Da Vinci, you know, paints them all on the one side of the table. I just think that's hilarious. Like, hey, let's all eat supper. Let's all get on the same side. Anyway, um, so they're all in the same room still. And it says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see me. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, now this doesn't mean that they didn't believe it, but they were almost like not, they weren't, they didn't want to get their hopes up. They're like, what? Like what's going on? So they were holding on still a little bit. It says, while they still did not believe it, uh, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now, when we read this as modern people, we're like, well, cool, but what's the big deal? There was a very strongly held belief in that time that if you were a ghost of any, any sort of spirit that you could not eat, that you wouldn't like eat or go to the bathroom, that you couldn't be touched or touch anything else. You were just this sort of mist, misty, airy, wispy thing. And so he, this is, in a sense, him giving them a test, him showing, not only am I here in person and you can touch the scars, but I will eat and the food will stay in me, right? Because I'm a real raised human being. So this is a litmus test as to his bodily existence for them. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So Jesus meets them as he meets us in personal fellowship. While we're walking on the path, while we are dejected and alone and without hope, we're still in, in holy Saturday mode where we think our Lord is silent. Our Lord is gone. And we're like, well, what's, what's going on? And he meets us in those times, even when we're unaware, even if he doesn't reveal himself to us at that time, he walks alongside us and counsels us. He ministers to us and his spirit opens scripture to us and he also meets us in the breaking of bread. He meets us in the communion ceremony and he meets us in the Lord's Supper as a church. So notice that pattern. He's with us on that path of dejection and silence. Then he reveals himself to us. He's made known in the breaking of bread in the activity of Christian community and the church. And then notice that this pattern is that in their joy, they run 
despising whatever sort of shame or social standards are there. They don't care about the danger. They run after, after seeing the resurrected Lord to tell of the good news. And this is the Easter pattern for our whole lives. Jesus meets us in fellowship and he walks with us in our confusion, our rambling and our dejection. He hosts us in his body, his church, and he breaks bread with us. And then he reveals himself to us. And then it is our job to run and tell others about him. This is our call as Christians to run and tell others about the resurrected, risen Lord. The Lord may still just look, just look like a nice man to these people. Like if you go out and share with others, he might look like the man on the road to Emmaus for a time, right? People you tell about Jesus might just look like a nice man who's helping to explain something or who's sitting with you over dinner. But be faithful and keep proclaiming the risen Lord because Christ will reveal himself to them in his time. And as much as I wish we could reveal Christ to people, it is him, it's his Holy Spirit. He's the one who chooses to open people's eyes to him. So be faithful, proclaim the good news, and the Lord will open people's eyes in his timing. So I wanna encourage you, as a, for the last year, I mean, as a church, I think we were great about getting, uh, getting together with people for coffee, doing Bible studies with people, getting out in the community, uh, inviting people to church, whatever it might be. And then with COVID, a lot of our natural outreach was just sort of stamped out. We just couldn't, you know, whether, whether it was our outreach outside the church or inviting people into our homes, just so many of those things went by the wayside. And for a year then, we've in a sense been forced not to do outreach in the same ways that we were before. We weren't having people into our homes because we didn't want to invite them and then we didn't want them to feel awkward if they didn't or, or did want to come and the masks, everything. It's just, it's been a hard year to proclaim the gospel to other people in the ways that we were before. But I want to encourage you as the weather is now so beautiful and getting nicer and vaccines are going around and numbers are going down, it's time to begin this proclamation of the gospel again, to start inviting people into our homes, to be out in restaurants with people, you know, of course, depending on safety and comfort levels and everything. But it's time to start getting out there again and go on walks with people and begin these soul-saving and uh, loving conversations again, like on the road to Emmaus. Um, one small plug is what we're going to get into. This might not be for everyone, but I think some people would really dig this. For the next four weeks, we're going to be doing a literature series here. So if you, you know, if your way of reaching out to people best is getting, you know, getting coffee one-on-one -on -one in coffee shops, this is kind of one of my things. I love to get coffee with people and like read through scripture or just talk through ideas with people. Uh, but if you, if one of your main ways of sharing the good news is inviting people into your church community, which is a great way to do that. Uh, the next four weeks will be, I think, interesting. We're going to be taking famous stories that everyone is at least aware of or that we can quickly go over and starting from them. So we'll still be preaching from scripture, but the starting point, the diving board that gets us into our message will be a selection from literature that people are familiar with. Um, so if you know anyone, think of people in your life who are kind of like reading geeks or like maybe they used to be, but now they're busy and they don't read as much as they'd like to, but they really like classic famous literature, invite them to these this, to church in these next four weeks because I think it'll be especially up their alley. So that's just one, one uh, specific idea, but otherwise invite people into your homes, go through the Bible together. You'd be surprised. Postmodern people really respond well to this idea that we want to decide for ourselves. And so it, sometimes all it takes is just saying like, hey, have you ever read through what Jesus had to say about himself? And people are like, well, well, no. Well, 
I mean, it's worth reading. You know, even just as an academic pursuit, it's really, it's worth reading to see what Jesus said. And often people will be like, yeah, that's a good idea. I ought to see what Jesus had to say for himself. And you say, well, how about we get together and start reading through John or Luke or whatever book? And people are normally pretty open to that. You know, as long as you're not too, if you don't come on too strong, people want to see what Jesus had to say for himself. And then they're deciding for themselves, but really it's the Holy Spirit who starts coming into their heart then and influencing their decisions. So I want to finish on this uh, narrative, and then I'll pull uh, Matt back out. Um, when James, so James is the brother of Jesus, and he was the leader in the early church. We often think of Peter as being the big deal, but Peter goes and sails and starts working in Rome, and James, the brother of Jesus, is the main pillar back at Jerusalem. But then he was martyred, killed for his faith, and the early church, you know, being Jewish and having this strong sort of kingly understanding of who should take over, they thought, well, if James is dead, we should have somebody take over who's in the line of Jesus. We should, we should have an actual earthly relative of Jesus take over. And they established, you can read this in the, the historian Eusebius. It's all online for free. Eusebius writes about this. They thought, well, if James is dead, let's establish a new leader. And so they pulled on the cousin of Jesus to lead the church. And his name is Simeon. And this is a mystery that's lost to the ages now. We'll never know. But Simeon's father... Eusebius says, was named Cleopas. And it's just like this fascinating thing. This is the cousin of Jesus named Simeon, and his dad is named Cleopas. It's not that common of a name, but, but people had that name. And here's this, uh, this Cleopas that is the dad of the cousin of Jesus, which means this Cleopas might be Jesus's uncle. We don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. Nate, would you mind opening that door? Someone's, thanks. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know if you guys know this, uh, Jesus's father, Joseph, was likely, uh, likely passed away early or in the middle of Jesus's upbringing. Because after the infancy narratives, you never hear about Joseph again. And Mary is always alone. She's always alone later in life. And so most people think that Joseph has passed away. So it's even possible that this Cleopas was sort of a stand-in father figure or uncle figure to Jesus as he's being raised. We'll never know. It's a mystery lost to the ages. But let me just read this last scripture and then we'll, we'll pass it back to Matt. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So this is our Easter proclamation. You are witnesses of these things. Go and proclaim it to the world. All right, I'll call Matt back up. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.